This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble Union Square, please give a warm welcome to New York Times bestselling author Kylie Reed and host of Poured Over, BNN's Mua Messer. Well, hello, New York. It is always nice to see you guys live in a store. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and it is my great good fortune to be sharing a stage with Kylie Reed, who I have been looking forward to this. We confirmed this event like months ago, and I have been bopping around like a perky, perky cheerleader, almost like I could have gone to the University of Arkansas, which I did not. <laughs> I did not, and my colleagues can tell you I'm not really that perky. More importantly, I'm very happy to see you. And hey, New York, are you ready to come and get it? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't resist. All right. So we're back. Okay. Such a Fun Age was 2019, which suddenly, because it's pre-pandemic, feels a really long time ago. It was a different time. Yeah, it really was. I want to talk about how we got to Millie and Agatha and Kennedy and Colleen and Rylan and who am I missing? Oh, Jenna and Peyton. There's a, a lot of characters. Tyler. <laughs> yeah, but I like all of these characters. Okay, right. Josh maybe went, mm, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> I have some feelings about Josh, but how'd we get here? It was before Such a Fun Age even came out. So what? I had finished Such a Fun Age and okay. sold it in between my first and second year of okay. grad school. And I didn't want to waste mm -hmm. grad school. Like I'd had a job before and I knew like, you should write something while you're here. And so I started interviewing students of mine 10 months before Such a Fun Age came out. I knew I wanted to write about young people and money. That's mm -hmm. all I knew. And then I read the book called Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. It's written by two sociologists, and they interviewed women in a Midwestern dorm for five years and okay. tracked their finances and their outcomes and their socioeconomic background. And I just mm -hmm. loved the premise of yeah. these academic women interviewing these young women. And so I pretty much just did that and interviewed some of my students and mm -hmm. Starbucks workers and anyone who would talk to okay. me. And that's where we started. I remember a lot of the press from such a fun age where you would just come out and say, well, I, I, I really do want to make people cringe as they read. And cringe in a good way, right? Like, you guys have read such a fun age. You know what I'm talking about. But I don't know if it's me or you. I was cringing a lot less. I was just wide-eyed as I was reading because I was like, huh, I guess we're going to have this conversation about money, aren't we? Because that is kind of the last thing. Like, I know things about my friends that I love them, but I don't maybe need to know all of that. But we don't talk about money. We do not talk about money. Yeah. So I love the idea that you have planted yourself firmly in the place where we are going to have this conversation. I love talking about money. <laughs> I know. And I, well, I was raised in Boston. You know, we duct tape our shoes and we don't talk about what we drive and yeah. things like that. But I want to talk about these women and I want to talk about actually the generational shift, right? So we've got Agatha, the professor. We've got Millie, who's an RA. And then we've got this layer of students. And you do that thing that you do when you open a book. We're right there. No one opens a novel like Kylie Reed. And Agatha is interviewing Tyler, Jenna, and yeah. Casey about their feelings about marriage. And I'm thinking it's 2023. We're still talking about marriage, okay. Okay. 
and yet you had me from the first sentence. So can we talk about the structure and how you decide this is what we're gonna do? I mean, weddings and money, that's kind of, that's, that's a way to open this book. I did think that I would start with an interview. Mm -hmm. I love first chapters that combine people who wouldn't normally right. be together. Mm -hmm. And I think that your first chapter is teaching your reader how to read your novel. There's a lot of overhearing and gossiping, and I think mm -hmm. you're telling your audience this is about gossip here. But I did do a lot of throat clearing. I wrote an 80-page RA orientation scene, and I deleted all of it. It was really painful. But sometimes you have to do that right. to understand who these characters are, and you have to find the best place to drop in, and that just wasn't it. So I started with the interview scene, I felt like we were showing you a lot of characters and mm -hmm. I slowed down a bit with Millie. That's typically what I think works for me. So your editor passed me a manuscript. I, I can't even remember when. Was and it I like read 50 pages? It was so it long. Was, it, was, yeah. it was not what you guys are experiencing yeah. now. But I did read the opening twice because I was just like, okay. And the voice was there. And I mean narrative voice, right? Like, I mean, we have a cast in both books and there's overlap. I mean, there's overlap in thematically. And, but I was so happy to hear your voice in my ear again. And I was like, oh, right. It's been a minute since we've been here. It's been a minute. And the New York Times called this out. I thought this was kind of funny that Julia May Jonas called this out. The brand names thing. You know who else pulled off the brand names thing in a book like a couple decades ago? American Psycho, right? Like that was, a t it was a tool in American Psycho and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I was having a tiny moment and then I realized I'm being introduced to these college kids and my freshman year in college was <clears throat> a while ago and I may not remember much of it and I really like these kids. God, I'm so glad. I like them too and I, there are satirical elements within mm -hmm. my writing but I did not want to make fun of college kids in this. No, I think that's no, no, no. super lazy and uninteresting. And a lot of my students were really bright and clever. And they were also sometimes racist, like you people are all of those things at the same time. And so this was just showing young people in their dorms at the top of their intelligence one minute, right. making huge mistakes the other times. And, and yeah, that was the goal for me. They're babies. 19 is baby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... Luckily, I don't really remember the things I didn't know when I was 19, but oof, I am a card-carrying adult now. Yes. I, I, can, <laughs> I can do all sorts of things, including laundry and pay my bills. But it really is driven by women. This yeah. is really... And it's not a single sex... I mean... There's two men, I think. And it's yeah. not that I don't like men or anything. It just, this is a book about buying things. This is a book that's majorly about consumption mm -hmm. and what we do when we're alone and the things that we buy and what they say about us. I think that women have the opportunity to buy a lot more things than men for the most part and they're right. marketed a lot more things. Like Target is a big part of this book. When you walk into Target, that big section that's like, are you going on like a book club or a ladies night or whatever? There's all of these things that are like, buy this, you woman. And so I think that that's why I gravitate towards more women because right. when it comes to buying things, that's, that's who's buying a lot of things. Yeah. I will totally own the fact that I just did do a buy online at Target for a vacuum cleaner. I just like I just showed my age right there. I'm just like, my vacuum cleaner died. I really don't want to have to go through all of it. I just really want the thing. Can I please just give you my American Express? Tyler 
and Peyton and Kennedy are the roommates. Jenna and Carrie are Tyler's friends. All of them have very distinct voices. Yes. And yet, regionally, it's not like one kid's from California or one's from Baltimore or one's from Boston. They're all from roughly the same area. They're at a state school. They've had similar experiences for the most part. Yep. And yet, every one of these women is distinct. That was really important to me. Mm -hmm. There is a homogeny within college towns. When I lived in Fayetteville for a year, young women would walk down the street in the exact same outfits. And I was like, oh, there must be an event. And then the next day I was like, there must be another event. <laughs> What's going on? And they just all dressed the exact right. same way. And I learned it was called lampshading, mm -hmm. where you wear a big t-shirt and then little shorts underneath and your body's like a lamp or whatever. So I wanted them to have the same cultural aesthetics mm -hmm. because a lot of my students spoke in the same way that I thought was really interesting. When my students, when I would tell them, hey, can you say more on that? A lot of them would say in the exact same way, oh my gosh, I hate telling about this. And there, I think that that's why I made the book. There was something so tender and specific and delicate in the way that they said that, mm -hmm. that I wanted to figure out how to make characters who had that culture but were very, very different. Jenna is obscene in her comparisons. Like, if anything wrong happens to her, she's like, wow, I'm like in the Indian Removal Act or whatever. And it's like, no, you're not. Casey is really academically driven. She's mm -hmm. one from, from Alabama. Tyler is mean. And Tyler is the one kind of true working class character. Mm -hmm. But she has so much cultural cachet and knows how to wield her power okay. that, that she kind of avoids any scrutiny over that. Yeah, there's a lot of young people in here, but I hope they're distinct. Tyler wants a puppy. And that carries a lot of weight. But I love that that's the detail, right? That's how I know I'm reading you. Okay. Because you find those little details, and I'm like, okay, Tyler wants a puppy. Oh, no, Tyler wants a puppy, full stop. This will come into play. And part of these women and being around these young women and this idea of a flattening of culture, right? Like algorithms may have a little more to do with our lives than we would like them to do or would like to pretend that they don't kind of thing. But these women are genuinely who they are. You know, cell phones are not necessarily driving their interaction. Social media isn't driving. They're, they're in and out of each other's dorm rooms. They're in and out of each other's sidewalk. They, they just, there is a physical connection there but they're still really lonely and a little isolated. And the way you talk about loneliness and the way you talk about individuality is really hard to do without sounding patronizing, which you never do. How are you constructing those voices? How are you keeping these kids straight? How are you letting them be themselves on the page? Because you do still kind of have a point to make. I mean, you're writing yes. a novel for a reason. Yes, I think it was the different avenues that loneliness can take that mm -hmm. shaped a lot of the characters. I mm -hmm. thought Kennedy was going to be, Kennedy's a young transfer student from Iowa and she has a secret and she's just having a really hard time making friends. I thought she was going to be a smaller part of the novel until I started writing about her being alone in her dorm room and the gross things that she likes to do, like yeah. pick at the plaque in her teeth and, and do whatnot. Kennedy came from this book I read called Monoculture, how one 
Story is Changing Everything, written by F.S. Michaels. It's a book that is all about capitalism, but she doesn't call it capitalism. She calls it the economic story. And she talks about how economics filter into every different part of your life. And she has this chapter where she talks about capital tells you like you're a rational human being and everyone is a rational human being and every decision that you make is rational because that's why you chose it. But the markets are more like one of those really good Chinese restaurants that have like 400 things on the menu and you have gotten three or four things and you're like, oh no, this is my favorite. But that doesn't mean that it's actually the best choice for you. It's mm -hmm. just the one that you've always chosen. And I was really obsessed with the idea of too much choice paralyzing Kennedy and mm -hmm. her not knowing, should I go to an improv group or is that for losers or can I do this? And I wanted to explore the economic story within the world of a dorm. So then it was like, okay, so what's the commodity? And mm -hmm. I think it's friends. Yeah. So that's what I used here. And it was all of those people's relationships to yeah. friendships that made me heighten their, their characteristics. And then we have Agatha, who is nominally the adult. She's the visiting professor. Her personal life is a little messier than she would like it to be. She really would like things to fit in their nice little yeah. boxes. And I have to say, as much as I understand sort of where she was coming from, you're not judgy because you're creating this world and you're living with these people and you're writing. I was a little judgy when it came to Agatha. <laughs> I was a little judgy. Because here you are, nominally the adult in the room, right? Like an RA is two steps away from being a child. A 19-year-old is a child. And Agatha is theoretically the, I mean, she has a PhD. She's theoretically the adult in the room and she is not adulting. Mm -hmm. And it comes a bit from money panic. It comes a bit from a power dynamic where she's afraid of becoming irrelevant, right? But Agatha. Can we talk about Agatha for I mean, a second? I love Agatha. I know. I, I, and, and this is your, and I'm delighted that you love Agatha because then I got a great character to read. But I'm really looking at her going, you're the adult. What are you doing? I wanted to have three characters that had three really specific relationships to money. So Millie is saving, saving, hustling all the time. Mm -hmm. Kennedy doesn't think she has a relationship to money. She thinks she's kind of like unpolitical in that way. But she has a deep connection to money, especially when she's like having a panic attack. And Agatha is just splurging. She has money and she's spending it and she finds herself thinking all the time. I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in the way people use geographic locations as like a get out of jail free card and saying, well, this is not Chicago, this is not New York, so what I do here doesn't matter as much. And she definitely does mm -hmm. a lot of that. Agatha has a sophistication that's kind of like what you think like a professor is like when you're 10, you know? Right. <laughs> And Millie definitely sees her and says, oh, this person knows mm -hmm. how to be an adult. And that doesn't always happen. Millie's 24. We're yeah. going to cut her some slack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I, I really did appreciate the balance between sort of these younger kids, the college students themselves. And I'm rooting for Millie. I'm rooting for Millie in the way that I was rooting for Amira in such a fun age where I'm like, I remember being that age. I'm really glad I'm not that age. I'm really glad I have yeah. not been that age for more than a minute. But there's something about your early 20s, right? Because they're peers. I mean, we're talking 24, 25 on the cusp of 26. And it's that moment where you're like, I'm supposed to be doing something more, and you have no idea what that means. Yeah. No idea. And I love these women. Okay. I really, really... But you put them in a little bit of a pressure cooker, both of them. 
Billy was not born from Amira. Okay. But Amira is incredibly not careerist. Right. And Millie is like, what can I do? How can I serve you at any moment? I think if they were roommates, they would hate each other. Oh, completely. So oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but it, I do like the idea of exploring two women who are doing it completely differently and mm-hmm. still really struggling in their 20s when they're supposed to be having right. so much fun. It's a really interesting way, I think, of looking at power, too. I mean, we talk about sort of how power represents it's like who who gets to write power in fiction or in movies or in television right like and what are definitions like here we're in the white house and this is power or you know here we are flying a jet this is power power too can pop in really quiet ways and somewhere along the line culturally we started to say well if it's a small domestic thing you're not writing about power uh-huh. right like i've used this example before but in the opening of The Hours by Michael Cunningham, you know, there's that section set in the 1950s in Pasadena and we're in a kitchen and clearly this woman is not having a good go at life. But essentially, Cunningham's writing about power. Who has it? Who gets to be a person, right? And she's essentially like making a cake for her son in her kitchen and she hates her life. I'm actually quite sure I would not have wanted to be a housewife in 1950s California or 1950s anywhere, right? So to see... Millie and Agatha and what that relationship looks like and then Millie and these kids and these kids are not always respectful of Millie I, I had a couple of moments with Tyler and Jenna where I was like mm-hmm yeah. I'm judging you yeah. <laughs> you can I, I, I welcome any judgment I think, not you oh, them no, of course I understand. <laughs> no, I understand I think that what attracts me to these worlds and what sets me up to write about these characters is understanding that in such a fun age, the big crime is not how Alex treats Amira. The big crime is that Alex can affect Amira's healthcare and she shouldn't be in charge of that as one person (laughs) or anyone. And here with Millie and Agatha, Millie is an RA, a very popular role for people. I was an RA for a year as well and it offers room and board, and I think I got $700 a semester, which at the time I was like, this is great. Now I'm like, oh my God, that was nothing. Um, If Millie didn't have to fight for room and board, if Millie didn't have to Mm -hmm. jump all those circles, the idea of Agatha potentially exploiting her wouldn't even be an option. So when I'm working within the parameters and I highlight the actual like wrongdoing, it's really Mm -hmm. easy to let my characters just kind of do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah, but I love the way they do it. I just judge them while yeah. they're doing it. I mean, I try to keep my Boston in a box. I don't always succeed. That's really... I want to work in some questions, though. Part of the fun when we do stuff in New York, too, I am so shouting you out, Robert. You just have to get over it. Robert Jones Jr., the author, author of The Prophets, oh is here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh my. So I'm reading his index card first and directly as it is written because it entertains me. Dearest Kylie, first of all, Sally Sibling, congratulations on the New York Times review. Second, please explain to this audience how you wrote a whole new amazing novel while also being a new mom. Because how? And there's a smiley face at the bottom. Can I have that? Yes, <laughs> um, I did it barely. <laughs> I was pregnant for this one. And I mean, I always cry when people write those acknowledgments to like the little one in them at the time. But it's like, most tender thing ever. I love being a mom. And so a lot of this was written in the middle of the night after pumping and whatnot. Um, I do think having a baby reorganizes your cosmology of the world a bit. 
And it was a very nice thing to say, okay, well, if my baby's healthy, I should just make all the choices I want in this book because nothing else really matters. And so, yeah, writing with the baby is great. Yeah, everyone should have a baby. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. No. No, don't. She's right. Me was right. No one should. <laughs> Maybe ask a few people. Uh, no, yeah. some of us are happier to be aunties. Like, some of us are totally down with but the aunties. But we also need the aunties. Yeah, see, everyone needs I mean, people who I, don't have I, kids around. Someone's so. got to teach yeah. them how to swear. Yes. <laughs> No, really, that is kind of my role, but anyway. <laughs> this book is a lot about power dynamics in academia. How does this reflect real-world problems, and what do you hope readers take away from it? Okay, I have, I have lots of minds about this. I'm of the mind that a novel should not leave you with a thesis, and a novel shouldn't tell you one mm -hmm. thing, and that you shouldn't leave being like, did I read that right? Did I get that right? I think a novel should reflect the deep parts of human behavior in such an accurate way that like a wormhole forms and you're like, oh my God, I know that person or I've done that or I've mm -hmm. seen that or I can see that gesture. That's what I think a novel is supposed to do. I don't think it's wise to theme your way into a yeah. novel and start yeah. by being like, I'm going to write about how slavery is bad. And it's like, duh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> you've got to do a little more than that. And I also just don't think that that's like convincing if you have a really beautiful depiction of like a fully fledged character who right. also happens to be a slave. I think that that's more just more intense and, and believable. Mm -hmm. When it comes what I want people to leave, the, uh, leave from this book, when I pick up a book, I want to be entertained. I want to recognize people. Someone told me, oh, I knew a Peyton and her parents would drive four hours to have lunch with her and then they would drive back to wherever they were. And that's truly what I want. I think a novel should make you remember people you thought you forgot right. so long ago. I love when my books make people think about healthcare for however mm -hmm. they're thinking about mm -hmm. it. I hope that my novel keeps people up a little bit late. And I think that finding yourself in a novel is very important, but I also think forgetting yourself is even better. I need to forget myself. I read quite a lot and I read very quickly and I read to blow up my world and make it bigger. That's, yes. That has always that's been the it. thing for me. And that's partially why I was so happy to hang out with college students okay. in my dotage. I have some baby cousins who are in their early 20s, and I don't get to see them as much as I would like. But, you know, there's this generation gap, right, that we're having in a really... And it's not just money, and it's not just class, and it's not just race, and it's not just gender. It really is a straight-up generational moment where everyone's kind of looking at each other going... I don't get it. I mean, my friends are having this with their kids in their 20s where they're just like, I, and I'm looking at them going, but they're, they're yours. And sitting in this world of come and get it with these kids and Millie and Agatha was great. It was, it was, I was having a really good time even when I was kind of raising an eyebrow and I'm like, mm. And the thing is, I went to college in a time where no one had a cell phone. You know, have any of you seen the everyone posting the photos of you at 21? Yeah, mine are on paper. <laughs> Not doing that. <laughs> and it's kind of fun to be like, yep, don't even know where those pieces of paper are. So the idea that these kids have been living online in a way, right? They're part of the world in a different way. Agatha kind of is limited in her understanding. She's like... This woman is at a college campus thinking no one's going to read Teen Vogue because her friends won't. Yeah. That's a moment where I was like, oh boy. Oh boy, you her need to get out of your own small way. This yeah. Way. Yeah, yeah. And I get, I mean, I, I totally understand why you like her. And I did, I will say, 
I came around, but I just, I was judging a couple of things. Oh, she did like, like hiding out in a college student's room and taking notes, right? So you can write on, that's a little creepy. Okay, so yes, but I did do a little bit of that when I was Okay, writing. all right, I'm come kidding, on. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I asked full consent. Yeah, no, well. And that is where our similarities Yes, diverge. and we know to do that, right? <laughs> yes. Like we know to ask for, I'm sorry, yes. I grew up in the 90s, we were yeah. wolves. We were raised by wolves, we were, pick your metaphor, we were barbarians, I mean it was, we did not have good judgment. Of course. What I wanted to play with a little bit is mm-hmm. Agatha's taking the words of young people and using them without their consent right. and profiting menially. She doesn't really need the money. Yeah. And there's Millie who makes a new cool friend. Mm-hmm. And Millie's taking her friend's words and positioning as them as their own. One thing I think is really interesting is just like who can use who else's words and who can write about mm-hmm. who else. Like all the time we like listen to songs by pop stars and they're terrible and we know exactly who they're about and we're like, that's fine. <laughs> it's very strange and whose words belong to who is, is an area I think is really interesting. I also don't even like to have the location finder on on my phone. And I've got friends who are just like, oh yeah, yeah, well, you know, my partner's on her way. I can see where she is on my phone and I'm just kind of doing this going, have I turned all of that off? And it's that extension, of, like, where am I in the world? Who am I in the world? What are my words? What do I sound like? Who's allowed to represent me? Right? And I don't know, are we losing sense of who we are as people because of That's that? Like, question. I mean, are, are the edges, like, are the edges really blurred because we're so used to living online, right? And I mean, I like being able to check in for a flight on my phone. I totally, I don't have to stand on a line. It's great. You go right to the, but there's other stuff where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not putting, oh no, no one needs to know that. No, there's not a single person. Yeah. And like these kids are navigating a space, right? Where the adults aren't really great at adulting. I mean, Millie really wants this house. And when I was 24, buying a house was just not a thing that yeah. I was ever gonna think about. So what does that money mean? What does that house represent? Like what's she looking for that she's yeah. not getting anywhere else? So Millie, I want to take it back okay. to understand Millie. She wanted to go to University of Arkansas. Her mm-hmm. father works in a university in Missouri, and she could go there for much less, but she loves Arkansas, and she wants to make it happen. So she lives there for a year and gets in-state tuition by working as an innkeeper in a coffee shop. So she already feels like she's a little bit late when she mm-hmm. starts. And then she's going through her junior year, and her mom gets sick, so she goes home for a whole year. So now she's 24 and she's a senior and she's like, oh, I'm so old, I'm almost dead practically. How am I gonna like get through college? I think that Millie, after a year of watching HGTV, sees Holmes as this superficial symbol of adulthood. Mm-hmm. And she's like, this is what I right. need to correct the two years of lateness right. that I just had. Millie is someone for whom hard work has always paid off. Yep. And the idea of not doing it is more terrifying than doing it. And I think in real time, she understands that sometimes people get things from not working hard. <laughs> and sometimes your really hard work is not rewarded right. in the way that you want it to be. And right. if, if Millie does, this is not giving an ending away or anything, mm-hmm. I think the thing to remember is if she does everything perfectly, she's never gonna own an apartment in Chicago. Her world is very limited too. It is, but she doesn't want to, be in an apartment in Chicago. And I really would hope, because obviously we have stores around the country, right? Like we have stores in tiny places and big places and 
And not everyone wants to live on a coast in a city. Not everyone wants the apartment and friends, right? And we need to keep having that conversation. And I think that's so important with this book because these women are actually okay with where they are. They like it. It's, it's yeah. home. It's community. And I think we need to expand... You know, it's like when we talk about class, it's like, well, there are multiple levels in this conversation. Which level are we speaking to, Yeah. right? AFL's a really easy place to mm -hmm. love. It's my, probably my favorite. US How did city. you end up there? You went for I a year. I just walked on over. No, I'm kidding. Okay. I, 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 my husband had a job opportunity there, and I had just had nine rejections from graduate school. And he said, do you want to come and try again? And I said, sure. <laughs> so that's what I did. Uh, you know. Um, so I worked at a coffee shop, and I wrote for a little magazine, and mm -hmm. I applied to graduate school, and I lived there for a year. But Fayetteville is wonderful, and it, yeah. it makes total sense to me that the Millie wants to live there. I think that the geographic question mm -hmm. is why I reject the campus novel premise a tiny bit when people okay. say, so you did a campus novel. And that's 100% correct. This takes place in the campus. I think it's a bit more intimate, and I think mm -hmm. dorm novel fits more of the vibe because mm -hmm. this novel isn't concerned at all with grades or academia. But right. I think when I, tell me if you feel this way, I think when I think campus novel, I think Ivy's, which is like 2% of the population yeah. or something of who goes to school. Most people are at state schools right. like Fayetteville. Um, I think Ivy's and murder and drunk adults. Yes. <laughs> Mostly drunk adults, actually. I want to be told a story. I want to meet people that I might not otherwise meet, some of whom I will judge and then come around to because I'm human. But I just, the energy in this book, it sits in conversation with such a fun age because you obviously have created both of these. You're pushing us to have conversations about money and class and transactional friendships in a way that no one else has been really prepared to do, and that's part of the fun for me of reading you, because I'm like, where's Kylie going to push me to go now? What am I going to think about that I wasn't going to think about earlier because of you? So can we talk about creating these worlds? I've got lots of questions about craft in my lap. I am not ignoring your questions, guys. When you're starting a new project, do you start with the story and find the underlying themes along the way, or do the themes directly inform the story? Neither. I'm not sure. When okay. I started this one... I feel like the first six months is just listening and reading and interviewing people and figuring out what I want to write about. I read an entire book on animal law and I used none of it. <laughs> it was devastating. It was so boring. But I was like, something is here. It wasn't. Um, I just listen for the first six months and see where I'm pulled to. I do like plot a lot. And so I do start to write out my plot and what mm -hmm. I think is going to happen. But if things are going too much according to plan, I know something's wrong. It never okay. goes according to plan in the beginning. I write on hand a lot. That's usually in the beginning. Okay. And then when something is okay, it goes into a Word doc, and we just keep going like that. So the person who asked the question about plot, I feel like Kylie just answered that. Yes? I hope so. I don't know whose question, because I didn't ask you guys to sign your questions. But How did you feel once you finished the final draft of this book compared to Such a Fun Age? When I finished Such a Fun Age, mm -hmm. that w I've written other novels before, but that right. was the first one I was really proud of. Mm -hmm. And I was still figuring it out. I was at Iowa. It felt like a do or die situation. I knew when graduate school ended, I needed to go back and get a right. job and things. And so that felt really like pressury. Mm -hmm. I, for the last six weeks of Such a Fun Age, I wrote for eight hours a day in my room and my husband would put like little bowls of soup in the door and I would grab them and go back inside. And when I finished, 
I went downstairs and I said, I think I'm done. And he said, I love you so much. You smell so bad. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> it was just such an intense feeling with such a fun mm -hmm. age. I think I knew more about the editing process with Come and Get It. Yeah, I And so it. it didn't feel like a once, like, I'm done right now mm -hmm. situation because I knew how much the cover would play into it and I wanted to see what my editor had to say. So it didn't feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I would say it's similar to when I realized what I wanted the ending scene to be, mm -hmm. which I feel really strongly about. And so, yeah, that felt pretty nice, yeah. Dialogue. Okay, I know I keep saying the phrase, one of the great pleasures of reading Kylie Reed, and one of the great pleasures of reading Kylie is your dialogue. Thanks. And I need to talk to you about playwrights for a second, because I know you studied yeah. acting, and I know we have lots of great influences, including Paul Harding, which I'm a fan of Paul's. I'm a fan. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. He can really write. But I want to talk about playwrights for a second, because I think there's a very long list of playwrights who have influenced how you see character, or at least that swing, right? Like, mm -hmm. there's something in the rhythm, right? In the cadence of the dialogue, and the story is always moving forward, and not everyone can do this. I wish everyone could do this, but not everyone can do this. Can we talk about that piece of the process? Yeah. I went and got a BFA in theater. That's humiliating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I read a lot of Noel Coward, Chekhov, when I was okay. in school, and just, it's all about rhythms. Yeah. I ended up making up my own monologues and just lying to my professors and telling them like, oh, I found this in this uh, black thing. And they were like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's right. And they would just let me do them because I just told them they were a fake players. That, I love that story so yeah. much. I or just... I would say like, oh, this is from Living Single. And they'd be like, yes, I'm familiar. Yes, that is totally fine. Um, I probably should have known. I should have been writing then. But now I love Annie Baker so much. The Flick and John are yep. two of my favorite pieces. And when I can hear people talking in a way that real people talk, and I feel like I'm hearing mm -hmm. something I'm not supposed to hear, something kind of goes off in me right. a little bit. I think that when it comes to young people, it was a real challenge to make sure I was depicting them correctly and also showing them at the top of their game. We do not speak well as humans. Humans speak terrible. And when you're like, transcribing something it's like um oh my god yeah oh, no I, I, we transcribe yeah. the show yeah <laughs> <laughs> we tra yeah. we do a lot of work before you guys see it online because oof yeah it's a nightmare <laughs> wow yeah. understanding I, how to add those things mm -hmm. while making it readable was a big challenge mm -hmm. but dialogue is is obviously one of my favorite parts of, of telling a story yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm eavesdropping whenever I'm in your world. And sometimes it's a little uncomfortable, straight up. And sometimes I'm just like, oh yeah, this is why I read. Because I get to hear all of these things that I would never be party to otherwise. I went back, and this time, when I was rereading Such a Fun Age, this time I actually listened to it on audio. So it was slightly different, because I felt like it was still your voice, but then I had an actor reading a lot of it, and Alix, who I keep wanting to you call, can call her, her Alex. Thank it's you, really I, thank you. I just, I, I gotta call her Alex, I'm so sorry. Alex felt sadder and lonelier to me on this read than she, the first time I was kind of like, oh, sweetie, you'll figure it out, but this time I was like, ooh, ooh, I, you, oh, you're not okay. It's not that I'd forgotten about Kelly, but he has a couple of moments closer to the end of the book where I was like, oh, you. 
dude, you are not Prince Charming. Like, what? What is... And it was great to be back in the world, but have a new experience of it. And I think that's really important when you're reading, right? Like, I don't always get the luxury of rereading as much as I would like. I do read, reread a lot when I'm prepping for a show. But have you ever gone back to your own work and thought, wait a minute, where did that come from? Not, not too often. Okay. I went on a writer's... When I sold Such a Fun Age, mm-hmm. I was on a writer's retreat, okay. which was terrible because I got barely any service. So my agent would call and say, okay, here's the update. And then the phone would cut out. <laughs> it was terrible. So I reread some things that I wrote there because I just had too much in my head. Right. And it was a little painful. Okay. I think this is probably why I don't have like a tattoo or anything because I just <laughs> feel like the things that I write four years ago, I just kind of move on a little bit. I think that there are threads of my interests there, mm-hmm. but I just get into a new project so quickly. And the way that I would approach something just becomes really, really different. But also, Such a Fun Age was set in, what, 15, 16? It was 15. 15, so, I mean... This one's in 17, so and, not too far. But away. still, 15 yeah. and 17 from now feel like it was a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, and not historical... Fi- okay, I, you know, technically, the 80s are now historical fiction, and I'm just offended by that. I'm just so offended mm-hmm. by that. And, you know, Alex sort of maneuvering as a proto-influencer, right? She's got a blog. I'm like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, Like, but we did get a generation of writers out of that, right? Like, people started their careers. We had women who created entire kind of brand empires, right, based on Mm -hmm. blogs. And now it's like, oh, right, right, the world is really, really different. And I like the idea that I can sort of dip back into a period that I experienced and see it differently each time. Like, I don't want the same experience every time I dive back into something. I want to no. be surprised. I want to learn something new. Like, I don't know everything. Yeah. I'm glad she seemed a little lonelier, too. Yeah. I think I just, Alex gets a really bad rap. Mm-hmm. I think she's a, such a scapegoat for so many people. I mean, when I was on tour, it was just white woman being like, she's awful. Me, Yeah, that's good. the fun Her part. Oh, that, that's the really fun part of the lecture, and you're just kind of staring at the Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was a lot of like, well, our nanny actually is part of the family. And so it's like different, (laughs) which is like whatever. And like, here's the thing about Alex, though. She makes a lot of mistakes and I'm showing a person within a four month span. That's all I'm showing. But the thing about Alex, I think you should remember is she never messes with Amira's coin ever. Right. Amira's always paid on time. And that is it. If I can tell you, look, when I was nanny for six years, Mm -hmm. all the time, people trying to mess with my money. And that's the way that like really hurts someone all the time. Someone would say, how much do you charge? 14 an hour. Okay. And they go to pay me $11 an hour, right? Nope. It's 14. Mm, are you sure? Like that to me, like there's, there's steps mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and people love to put Alex in this box, mm-hmm. but I think she's a lonely, lovable person probably because she's in my book. <laughs> well, but also Amira is always clear too that it's a job. It is a job. Amira has a much clearer vision of what's happening in yeah. this transactional relationship than Alex. And it's because Amira's got a better grounding. She has... Her friend, she has clearly her family that she may not see that much, but she knows where she is in the world. Yeah. And she's not trying to reinvent herself. She may not know what she wants to do for work, but that's okay. Audience question, though. Five years on, if you were to predict the future of Amira of such a fun age, what do you envision for her? I have clocked out on that. Okay, <laughs> I'm fair kidding, enough. I'm kidding. 
But I don't think it's like fair to the read. Is that weird? Like, no, it's I not weird. Like it's not weird at all. It's almost like when a book puts uh, a real person on the cover, I'm mm-hmm. like, no, that's my job yeah, yeah. to think about like what they look like. Like, do not tell me because I'm gonna imagine someone like probably like way hotter, or, like whatever it is. Um, when I finish a book, I really try and finish it and not mess up anybody else's read. I yeah. did, if you can believe it, end Such a Fun Age by jumping 12 years into the future in the first draft. And it was... It hard. sounds very first draft. Yes, it was. It sounds my, very my first draft. was like, let's try that again. <laughs> and I'm glad we did. Um, so I try and really cut it off. When it ends, it ends. And, and then I start the next one. Yeah. A bunch of different people are asking what advice you have for people who want to be writers. For people who want to be writers. Yeah. Okay. Read nonfiction, I would say. Mm-hmm. I have so many students who say, no, I'm so weird. No one's into the things I'm into. I'm so weird. And I'm like, no, someone's like dedicated their whole life to doing a thesis project on like whatever you are interested in. Mm-hmm. And you have the internet and you can go and find these people. Reading nonfiction, I think, is huge. If you are interested in a professor who studies jealousy or soul cycle, I don't know. I would try and go find them. And something I did all the Mm -hmm. time in terms of like finding work was I would go and find the professor and their CVs are always up and I would look at their syllabus and see what they assign to their students in certain classes and I would read Mm -hmm. those. Protecting your time, I think, yeah. I worked at an office here in New York and every Friday I would stay in the biggest conference room and like order myself dinner and I would just write no matter what and friends were mad at me and they would say like, well, why, like nothing is due or like, but I'm having, a, and I just yeah. felt very strongly that if I left for one thing, I would leave mm-hmm. for anything and I just had to protect those Friday nights because I had a full-time job and that was all I right. could really do. Yeah, protect that time, put your phone away, just put it away. Like even if you're not writing anything, just put your phone away, <laughs> just put it on your I mean, it always strikes me, I'm, I spend a lot of time with writers at different, you know, sort of points in their career, right? And like, not everyone is super established. And the work has to come first. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it's just not going to happen. And, and that's the thing where, I mean, I'm watching people at all different levels, and some people write faster than others. And some people, I'm just going to be really, really patient. And I'm going to be really pleasantly surprised when I see the thing. And then other times I get a manuscript, and I'm like, oh, hi. Okay. But the work gets done, right? Yeah. I am going to read this question, former BNN barista. <laughs> I'm totally going to read this question. I don't know who you are, but not a question, but a compliment, even though it's not a question That's I'm reading fine. it anyway. As a former BNN barista, I cackled at the conversational correction from, wait for it, Starbucks to Barnes & Noble Cafe. Relatable. And then also, what good is a pencil without an eraser? I'm sorry, I didn't buy the pencils. <laughs> I have a jar of pencil. I actually have like an electric pencil sharpener on my desk and I drive people nuts because I'm constantly sharp. I like a sharp pencil when I'm working. And especially if I'm marking up a galley, like I just, I don't want ink bleeding through. So, sorry. <laughs> All right, before I let you go, because we yeah. do have lots of folks who want to get their book signed. I have a quick question. Book came out a couple of days ago. How many of you have already devoured your copy? Yeah, yeah I knew, right? It was totally worth it, wasn't it? Is it one of the, it's one of the best books you've read in a while, right? Yeah, I'm watching these heads now. Okay. Because I had a really good time with it, and I've read it twice already, That's so. Super nice. Sorry. I have a nice life. What are you hoping readers take away from Come and Get It? Beyond, like, the entertaining piece and, and hanging out with these characters. 
Okay, okay, this is, uh, bear with me. I'm here. Oh, are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> Do you remember the Olympics in 1996? No, but I like where this okay. story is going. It was in Georgia, oh. and it was Carrie Strug. Yeah. And it was the Fantastic, F Fabulous Five, Fantastic Five, I can't remember. There's something that happened then that I think about now a lot with my writing. Okay. Everyone was watching it. Everyone was watching mm -hmm. Carrie Strug in that moment, which is like complicated for its own reasons, but everyone okay. was watching it. That doesn't happen anymore because of the way TV works, because yeah. of the way time is, and like you, have, you don't have the service and everyone's watching things at different times, but everyone knew, and you could just say to someone and they would know what you were talking about. I think that the novels that I want to read and write achieve that everyone knows what that is. Yeah in a, just a second, when you can see a gesture and suddenly it, the novel like infiltrates your world a yeah. little bit and you're like, oh, I know exactly what that is, but I've never thought of it that way. Those are the moments that I really just want to achieve with people, whether it's the way that you f feel with embarrassment or your reaction to a certain set of numbers when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to create a weird community portal within okay. the I don't think it's weird. I totally get yeah. what you're talking about. I, yeah. I, I, wanted, I do really, I'm, I'm going to take weird out of the equation because I think that's part of how we change the conversation about money yeah. and about class and about us. So, like, we don't have to judge those words, right? Like, yeah. you're doing a very cool thing. Like, you made a world, right? Like, world building shouldn't be relegated just to sci-fi or just a fantasy. Like world building is a thing that happens in literary fiction too. And honestly, all of you guys know this, right? You're all readers, you know what I'm about to say. You know when the world is not working, right? You know. And you're kind of like, I'm done now, thank you very much, bye, gotta go. And it's like, why can't we have the insight and the characters mm -hmm. and the hard conversations about money and class and race and all of the stuff that is not always comfortable? Why can't we have that and beautiful sentences? Never. And then we read Kylie and we get those things. <laughs> All right, so we have a book signing piece, so I'm going to say thank you again for coming. And we are poured over. And Kylie Reed, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.